everyone. Um, yeah, I just want to um, say a prayer off of that song. It's just a really powerful moment I felt. So, yeah, Jesus, we just declare as a community that you are the one we want. Yeah, you are the center. You're the beginning, you're the end, you're right here now. And yeah, we want you. We want you as a community, we want you as individuals, we want you in our city. Yeah, we love you, God. Amen. Um, well, this is very, um, it's just an honor to give it, be part of the Nehemiah series. Um, for those of you who have not been following, we've been going through Nehemiah. Um, we've had a presentation on his, he, you know, he, um, maybe I should get some background. He uh, was, was someone who longed to see Jerusalem rebuilt while they were in exile. The Israelites were scattered. Um, they were under the rule of Persia. They had been conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Persians had taken over the Babylonians. Um, so they'd been in exile for quite a while, and there was some talk of a rebuilding happening in Jerusalem, which Nehemiah must have had his ear to the ground about that. And then that was halted by King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was very saddened by that. And he was praying to God about this. And then he asked the king to reverse the halting and to allow them to continue rebuilding. And the king gave him the go-ahead. So um, we'll pick up today with him starting the rebuilding. So it's very exciting. Um, but before I go into that, so that's some background. I just want to introduce myself to those of you who might be new here. Most of you know me because I've been part of this church for, uh, I think, since 2008. Um, I met my husband in this church. I've had all my kids while being in this church. And I just want to take a little moment to say how much I love this church body. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great, it's such a great community. Um, I was hanging out with Emily Colo on Monday, and we just found ourselves spontaneously talking about how much we love FCBC. Um, it's it's just such a we're just such a good size to really know each other, to really depend on each other, um, and really grow with each other. So, I've had many wonderful years here, and uh, it's just exciting to still be be with you all. Um, another, just one more. Um, maybe information about me is I'm also, I'm mostly a stay-at-home mom, but two days of work, two days a week, I work as a psychotherapist. So I meet with people in my office. I do individual therapy, sometimes couples, sometimes families. Um, and I just love my job. It's, it's such satisfying work. Uh, when I started out as a psychotherapist, I submitted myself to be a student of my supervisors. So anything my supervisor said, I did and learned from it. And then as I became licensed and got further in my career, I became a student of something called evidence-based methods, which is 
you know, models of interventions that have been tested, you know, had double-blind studies, and they're proven effective. Insurance companies really like those models, so <laughs> that's what I did. Um, but now as I'm like sort of a early veteran, I would say, because of the high burnout field, um, I now consider myself a student of uh, Carl Rogers. He um, developed Rogerian method of therapy, and in that method, it's not about the model or the intervention, it's about the relationship that you build with your client. And I'll, I'll bring that up a little bit later, that's why I wanted to introduce it now, but um, yeah, he's a, I, I'm, just, I'm just honestly curious, has anyone studied anything of Carl Rogers' work? We have a couple, okay, yeah. Fantastic guy, um, yeah. I've, I found his methods to be way more successful than most methods I've tried, so um, I'll, I'll bring him up later. It's very interesting. Okay, so I would like to tell you, though, about something that I do when I'm not at work, which is I read a lot, a lot of fairy tales to my kids. We are in a whole world of fairy tales. We are all in love with fairy tales right now. Um, when we go to the library, fairy tales, myths, and legends are all, all have a yellow label on them. And I tell my kids, you can pick any book with a yellow label <laughs> because I will read it to you. And, you know, other books are great. They're fine. But our, our kids like to read things repetitively. Like we'll spend hours just reading read-alouds together. And if I'm going to be up for that, I also want to be entertained. So <laughs> it has to be good. Um, so the interesting thing about fairy tales, though, is like you can open a book with your kids all snuggled in the living room, and then you find out like <laughs> the wolf eats the grandma. <laughs> it's just kind of like a, a moment of horror. And um, as a mom, I'm like, was well, this a good idea to turn this page? <laughs> what if I just welcomed into my home? And uh, there's just lots of dark themes in some of these fairy tales. And it's easy for me to be kind of like I want the adventure, but I don't really want the unpleasant darkness that's often in them. Um, but I've come to kind of appreciate the symbolic meaning of some of that stuff. So um, for example, did you know that there is a version of Little Red Riding Hood where Little Red gets away without being eaten by the wolf. Like typically, she gets eaten, and the hunter comes and like rescues her out of the belly of the wolf. But there is a version. I totally understand what's going on in that moment. <laughs> um, there's a version where she doesn't have to get eaten. It's one of the oldest versions. It's from Italy, and this is not one I read to my kids, <laughs> but and you'll see why. In that version, the wolf comes. So for those of you don't, who don't know, Little Red is sent to Grandma with some, by her mom with some bread. And she meets a wolf on the way. And the wolf tricks her so he can go ahead and eat Grandma. And then when Little Red arrives at Grandma's house and is invited in, the wolf then eats Little Red. But in this version, the wolf runs ahead of her, gets to the house, knocks on the door. Grandma lets him in. And he eats grandma, but he saves part of grandma and um, like maybe her arm or her leg and cuts it up and puts it on the table 
for Lil Rad. And then also takes, this is very R-rated, I know, also takes some of her blood and puts it in a cup and puts it on the table. And then he gets in bed and waits, and Lil Red comes, knocks on the door, and the wolf says, come in, I'm your grandma. And so Lil Red comes in at grandma's house. Everything's good at grandma's house. And the wolf says, Lil Red, how about you have a snack before coming to check on me? Real weird. And so Little Red innocently goes to the table and starts eating her grandma and drinking her blood, eating her body. And it's, it's just how can you redeem that? Right? Like how is there a lesson worth digging out of there? But the audience of the day would have been very Catholic. And the Eucharist, communion and Catholicism, they believe in transubstantiation where you know, the body and the, the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood. And it's a holy moment of bringing Jesus into your own body in a deep way. And so the audience of the day would have seen this as like a powerful lesson of like, oh, she's taking in, little Red is taking in the wisdom of her grandma. She's consuming her grandma and because of that, she's able to outwit the wolf, which she does. It's kind of deep. I mean, it's also like a bigger lesson, like just that story. I've come to meditate on and think, you know, what, what can I learn from the past? What can I bring in from, you know, on a very small level from my parents? I should be more open to their input. Maybe they have wolves, like stories that will help me avoid a wolf in my future. What can we learn from our history? So there's this magicalness about fairy tales that can keep you thinking about them for days. Um, and they're just great stories for kids, too, because you want your kids not to leave the path when you tell them not to leave the path. Um, so this is kind of like a lot of, how, a lot of how I feel about the story of Nehemiah unfolding. You can read it, and there's like these you know, general things that you can pick up the first time around. But then as we've been digging into it, there's these surprises and maybe some deeper thoughts for us, deeper things to dwell upon. And sometimes we can get, I mean, just generally speaking about the Bible, sometimes we can get offended at first by what we read. You know, like in Little Red, we might just see cannibalism <laughs> and we might miss Grandma, you know, the fact that she's getting wisdom from Grandma. Um, so something to consider as we, as we read today. Um, you know, in, in Proverbs 25.2, there's this very cool proverb where God says, where it's written, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. And even that is kind of offensive in itself. It's like, why would God conceal anything from us? But is there not a glory in seeking something out? Isn't that where the adventure is? You know, if, if we know everything, and our, you know, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of shortcomings. If I thought I knew everything, we'd all be kind of doomed. It's just a relief to know that in my life, there's more to learn. There's more area to grow. There's more depth to be known of Jesus. The search is really a rich feeling. 
And, and I think that's something we might not come up with. That's something God laid out for us, you know. God put that in us, and God keeps us on this seeking journey. Something to treasure. So getting into the passage for today, so, you know, like I said, Nehemiah had it on his heart to rebuild Jerusalem, and then he stepped out of his comfort zone, asked the king if the king could reverse his decree and they could keep rebuilding, and the king said yes. So he's, um, where, my, where my part of the passage picks up, he's in, on his way to Jerusalem, he gets there, and I'll, if you're anything like me, you might have come to church today and not read Nehemiah since last Sunday. So I'm going to read the passage for us just to get us all on the same page. And then there's some just questions I have for you guys about it. Does that sound good? Okay. <laughs> okay, so Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. And this is written from his perspective. So... When I went to governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, so a third, third member has entered the ranks of the naysayers, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We will start rebuilding. But as for you, 
you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Another translation that I read says, you have no portion or right or claim. And then it goes on, chapter 3. I won't read all of chapter 3 because <laughs> it's a list, a very interesting list, I will say, of people on board with rebuilding and about how they start. Um, some highlights from the list include, you know, these people, some of them get their children involved. There's nobles involved. There's um, people probably lower on the uh, status bar involved. There's people of all different trades. Priests are involved. Um, so it's a, it's a full-on response. So a couple questions I have that stuck out to me um, when I was reading this, and I'm, I'm curious what you guys think, is why do you think, first of all, why do you think he goes about it secretly? You know, he stayed there three days. You know, people know he's coming to help, but they don't know what he's going to do. And then he goes out in the night. Anyone have any thoughts on that? Any guesses? So like they might be afraid or like he might be afraid of the response or tell me more about that. Yeah, okay, so he's being wise about it. It's like until he knows the full situation and there's opposition, he wants to be prepared for that. Does that sound accurate? Okay. Anyone else have any ideas? Should I, by the way, should I give the mic to whoever? Okay. It just, I guess to expand on what you two were saying, um, he knows he has opposition, so he needs to get information, he needs to gather intelligence because he, he needs to know what he's talking about. They've all been living in the city for months and years, and he's just arrived. He might also be uh, building interest, getting giving time for the news of his arrival to reach everybody in the city and get people anticipating what is he here for and what is he going to say? He hasn't told anybody yet why he came. Kind of building interest, maybe kind of a PR thing. It might be, too, that he's trying to assess the real damage and the real cost and the real labor required before, you know, laying out a plan. Um, kind of want to keep, keep his cards close to his chest until he really understands the extent to which this uh, labor force is going to be needed and so that he can you know, speak accurately or plan accurately without getting too far ahead of himself. more 
maybe maybe he doesn't know who he can trust because he like um, Doug said he just arrived and he's just trying to get his own picture like you said because he doesn't know people might be wanting to get money from him so he needs to make his own assessment and then he can navigate the whole situation better uh, maybe so that as he's looking if he has a sense the Lord might have more to say so that he could hear the Lord without distraction without all those other voices um, that might like you say be discouraging or redirecting him like if it, if I were him I'd wonder where do I start yeah I think all of your responses get a little bit at like this idea that He's new on the block, so yeah, he needs to find out what's going on here. As much as he's part of the, the movement, he's been at the palace this whole time. And then also the sense of like, we know he's a careful planner. You know, he had been praying about this, thinking about this. He had a list when he went to the king of of all the things he might want. Um, so he's a, he's a man of thought, perhaps and wants to see for himself what the damage is before he maybe foolishly would go ahead and be like, let's rebuild, and everyone's like, but you haven't seen the damage. Um, so yeah, I like those are good responses. Another question I have for you, um, and I, I found this word to be such a standout word, is this whole word of disgrace. He says, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. What does he, you can answer either of these questions. I'm going to, I'm going to stack questions, which in therapy is a no, no, but I'll give you guys some options. So what does he mean by disgrace? That's one question. And if you can hold on to both of these, who brought disgrace on them? Where did this disgrace come from? Anyone want to give a bite at that? The fact that the walls were torn up by their enemies was a disgrace, and he wanted to remove the disgrace from the inhabitants around Jerusalem. Yeah, that's a good answer for the dis. Yeah, what what did he mean by the disgrace? The walls being turned down. A, you know, turned to rubble. Who brought the disgrace on them? Any takers on that one? We have to remember that the disgrace was the disgrace was brought upon Jerusalem because of the people's own sin. That's good. Anyone else want to add to that one? Anyone? You want to add something? I think Terry said it in a nutshell, but I, to expand on it, God allowed the Babylonians to come and tear down the wall um, because of their sin. But now God is, is helping them to um, build the wall again. So... Um, 
yeah, it's it's the disgrace from their sin, but in God's grace, He's allowing them now to to recover, as it were, from it. Yeah, I think you guys are right on the money there, which I think we we first heard about this idea of a disgrace that is wrought from them themselves um, through Nehemiah's prayer uh, in chapter one when he you know laments on behalf of his own people on behalf of himself that the reason they're in disgrace is because they did you know they chose to turn away from God's guidance from from his even his warnings. And so this is kind of interesting that he gets involved in this because you know he was living a pretty comfortable life it seemed. He was at a palace. I mean contrast a palace to a city without walls where he had no place to stay perhaps. Maybe he had to build his own place to stay. I think it talks about that later on. Um, you know, he he was in a place of honor, potential job security, and he moved to a place of conflict. You know, there's people out to dissuade him, threatening that the king, you know, might not be happy with him. Uh, this is the heart of the the downfall of Israel. You know, to reassociate with people who have brought on their own disgrace is kind of an interesting move. You'd think maybe he might want to distance himself. So what do you think? This is my last question I want to you know, take answers on. What, what does Nehemiah stand to gain from showing up in the rubble zone, from leaving his palace life you know, to, to live where there's conflict, there's vulnerability, there's disgrace, maybe low morale, I don't know. Any thoughts on what, what he's about here? What's his deal? I feel like this is the most question that you could give your thoughts or interpretations. There's no real right answer, perhaps. So if you want to give a stab at it, this is your time. wonder if there's some potential relief of his own internal pain and anguish that he's seeking to satisfy with the rebuilding. Well, as you were giving context and as, as we were led in worship today, that it was all about God's name. And I think in some senses the people were shamed, but in another sense their God was shamed. And he wanted to do this for God's name, to be for God's reputation, as well as you know the people's reputation. Those are the people of this God, that God, and uh, that was what I observed. Um, I saw in this Psalm 137 that I think we were led in last week that after it says by the river by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept then and how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land then it says if I forget you O Jerusalem 
May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So this is, seems to be the welfare of Jerusalem is kind of something that while in exile, the parents have passed down to their children like, hey, we're here, but never forget Jerusalem. That's really what we care about. That's that's where our heart is. And, um, you know, that's very close and near and dear to us. So even though he was away, he might have thought of that as why he wanted to go and do something. That's very good. Any other last thoughts on that? Kind of what I'm hearing from you guys, which the same same thoughts I the same train of thought I was on is the city one he has a relationship with God and um, God is a God of redemption you know he's caught up with a God of redemption so that is his that's where his mind is going that's that creates meaning in his life and the other thing is that Jerusalem was the city where God dwells. And there's a longing to be with God. This is a, you know, a symbolic physical space that, you know, they, like it said in that psalm, they looked to as a place where God would be, God would be redeeming, regenerating. So there's a lot of draw to, to not only go to where you could be with God, but also to have a place where God's people could come and be with God as well. So he's after God, you know, he's after God, not just for his own self, but also for his people. So when I was reading this, I thought, like Nehemiah, aren't we all facing a little bit of rubble in our lives? I'll speak personally, like, yeah, there's lots of rubble I can see in my life that you know, I'm hoping there's a redemption for. Um, and some of it, I think some of the rub- rubble we experience in life isn't necessarily our direct fault, right? Some of it can come from choices maybe our parents made or um, systems we're up against. But it still affects us. Like we still have maybe some apathy, maybe some anxiety, maybe some anger in our hearts. And then some of it we created. You know, some of it is just our own stuff, you know, our own shortcomings, Um, lack of patience or envy. Um, There's just real real struggle. And, you know, something that Nehemiah did is he didn't avoid the struggle. You know, he, he heard about the, the issues in Jerusalem and he could have ignored it. That was an option. But what would he have missed out on? There's a whole adventure he might have missed out on he also would miss out on, uh, in some ways, like a symbolic maturing, right? Like he 
would have denied the part of him that's into that's that's been um, influenced by this God of redemption. You know, he wouldn't have actually partaken in the actual redemption process. So there's a lot of growth he would have missed out on. And physical rebuilding, physical regeneration that benefited not just him. Uh, Can be the same in our lives. There's a lot of reasons we might not want to face some of our flaws or some of our shortcomings. But we miss out on a whole adventure by not taking them on individually within ourselves or with com- in community, uh, you know, asking people to come alongside you in those journeys. So there's, I don't know, there's something like, un- like a fairy tale, there's lots of different layers going on. So there's like what's happening with Nehemiah and then there's symbolically, you know, what, what are his actions telling us about God about ourselves. Um, You know, maybe we could draw that God is really glorified by his actions. You know, God's hand was all over his, his journey to get here. And then he got such a positive response from the people. Like, clearly there's something of life on this. Maybe God isn't just glorified by the temple in all its glory, maybe he's just as glorified by these efforts in the rubble that are happening. Makes me think of um, 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, But he also said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. To me, this is kind. Of, this is very exciting. This idea that you know, in our rubble, in our weaknesses, like God's power is being perfected. It's not when we have it all together. It's not when we're at the top of our game. We can bring a lot of glory to God in those times, but that it doesn't phase God. Either way, he's God, and he is being glorified when we're in relationship with him, whether that's in a position of strength or a position of weakness. It's very cool to be around a God like that. Um, you know, and it, and it makes it exciting to actually go to the places of weakness, too. And when we, when we can, like, come to our own life and look at it with this sense of, like, you know, me coming face-to-face with my shortcoming, man, God is really into that. There's something that kind of, like, breaks intention. I don't know if you guys have felt that in those moments. But you can really be open. You can access things like humility, patience, um, truth-telling, you know, you can actually say what's going on in your life if you know that God loves you regardless and is glorified regardless. And if you can experience that in yourself, like how much more do you have to offer, you know, your friends, your family that you know are also struggling? You know, you can really be present with them, really patient with them and have God's 
sight about their issue. And maybe it's the issue that bothers you, you know. Maybe it's something that really is quite unpleasant to be around. But if you can understand that God's into that, like he's into being there, um, into redeeming that, then that's, that's a, it's like a whole adventure. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like being on an adventure when you can be at ease in those situations. Because the opposite of an adventure is having the answers, having it all put together, and not putting yourself out on a limb. So there's a whole adventure awaiting when we have a right perspective of God and his idea about our when we're in disgrace. There's also this... Um, let me try to think how I want to say this. This happens to me in therapy too. Um, there's just so much to be missed if we don't carry this perspective of God or this perspective about ourselves. You know, if you if you start walking down, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like you can walk down a road of visualizing this perspective, and that's very um, motivating. Like, okay, God loves me. He's into this idea of me being in my rebel and rebuilding it. I don't have to fear him. But what's extra motivating is thinking about the other road. Okay, let's think. God only loves me if I have it my game together. You know, he, he doesn't love people who don't have it together. And that road is just extremely dark. You know, you can't, you can't mess up. You can't really be patient with others. You have to have it put together. Um, and, I, and that's the way we actually can live sometimes if we're not renewing our minds with God's perspective because there's lots of influence that comes at us about being perfect, about having more and more and more, about not being people who don't believe the right things. There's just a lot of messages. And so we need to renew our minds about who God is and what he's about so that we don't take that path because it's very stressful. It's very dark. Um, so just some things to kind of... Th- these are where my mind, This is where my mind was going when I was reading this. So the... The final layer is like that that I was seeing in this story is Nehemiah as this redeemer figure. You know, he's not part of the rubble at the time, but he feels part of it and he goes to the site of it and then he gets down and helps people rebuild. This kind of reminds me of someone else in the Bible years later. Anyone have a guess who I'm thinking of? It's a picture of Jesus. You know, Jesus, he, he was in heaven with God. But he felt for us, you know, the people created in his image, and came to a lowly manger. You know, he came to, to be among, like, our livestock and um, Mary and Joseph in homelessness. You know, right, it's just, 
He's just a God of redemption. It's just this beautiful picture. And from there, he goes even deeper. He takes on our sins and, you know, loves us. And through that, we change. You know, the the disciples were like experiencing love and experiencing the renewal of their mind and experiencing forgiveness of their sins. And we experience that with Jesus. And throughout the Bible, you just see these repetitions. It's like the same narrative over and over, and it, it never loses its power. You know, it is just such a powerful thing when you're like reading along in Nehemiah, and you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is here too. <laughs> He's all over the place. And um, there's also some comfort in the repetitive nature of that when you think about that. Like these Israelites, they're always failing and, you know, they're not listening to God. But God is still glorified, and they still keep getting second chances and third chances, and there's just this never tiring of redemption. And that's the way Jesus feels about us. You know, he's not tired of us. He's still on the adventure. And how powerful is that? So um, I'm going to go back a little bit to Carl Rogers here at the end. Uh, Carl Rogers uh, requires three elements to what he thinks is a life-producing therapeutic relationship with a client. And the first one is that the, the clinician has to develop an unconditional positive regard for their client. They have to really like them. <laughs> and yeah, like ideally we do love everyone, but sometimes it's hard. Um, and I experience this with some of my clients. Some of my clients I just love naturally. And some of them I have to look at them and just think about them. You know, just spend some time thinking about their lives, thinking about their physical appearance, like looking into their eyes. And what I'm doing is I'm conjuring up a love for them that's genuine and it is amazing when you start practicing this that you can really love everyone if you take time and get past your own offenses and things like that. So that's the first thing. That just sounds like unconditional love to me. The second thing is you have to bring your true self to the therapy room. So in the past, I've kind of, I don't think a I haven't brought a facade, but I've definitely been very guarded because I don't want to, I don't know, there's risks involved in influencing people or making people feel uncomfortable. So I've been very guarded, but with Carl Rogers as my teacher right now, <laughs> I've been bringing more of my true self to my therapy sessions. And this makes me think of speaking the truth in love. You know, if you really love someone, you can bring your true self because you're thinking about them. And they'll feel that. They'll feel if you have a word of like correction, but you've spent hours supporting, that's, that's a really healthy experience. It's a really life-giving experience. Um, and the last, the third element is that you believe that the person, your, your client, just needs a healthy relationship. And if they're in a healthy relationship, they will mature enough to solve their own problems. And 
I don't know. To me, this just feels like Jesus. <laughs> you know, he's here with us. He's not strong-arming us into anything. He's loving us. And he's speaking truth to us. He's saying, like, hey, there's some things in life that would be really helpful for you. And there's some things that aren't going to go well for you. But it's, you know, it's your choice. And in this kind of relationship, we really can mature. We really can grow. And I've just seen it in my clients. I've, I've never experienced so much consistency in people coming back for more and more sessions and actually seeing changes in their life. And I think this is something we can, A, like accept the fact that this is how Jesus feels about us, right? Like he has this unconditional positive regard for us. He just loves us. And he doesn't mind being in the rubble. He's excited about that, and he knows that we can grow to overcome these obstacles in our lives. Um, and, it, and if we experience that, how much can we offer that to one another, right? Like, it's not that far then for us to be able to hold space for each other in very deep and intimate ways, and we can mature as a body into the fullness of Christ. And what a vision. So I'm going to um, have us do a little activation. Um, there should be some paper on each of the rows. This is the, the last part. Oh. Irene's ready for church to be over. <laughs> So um, I just want you to take the next five minutes. Um, Tom is going to play some music for us, which is awesome. Um, And this is my prompt. I want you to write about this prompt. So the prompt is write down an area in your life. Just pick one where you're feeling a feeling. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's hopelessness. There's just something not working. Maybe you brought it on your own self, like the Israelites. Or maybe you're um, a recipient of something difficult that happened. Maybe that would be Nehemiah's place in some ways. Um, Bring these things before God with anticipation that he might have a way for you. You know, he might open a door for you you weren't expecting. He might give you some hope. Or, so this is the second piece. You could go that route. You could do both. You could go that route or you could go the opposite route and take some imagination freedom, uh, some freedom of imagination and write about what would happen if you don't. Choose not to let God see your rubble. You choose yourself not to see it. And you just stay the course. Um, and just notice like what what comes up for you, what what you start where you start landing with that. Um, so yeah, take five minutes and then I'll I'll close this out.
prayer. Yeah, God, thank you for the story of Nehemiah. Thank you for all these stories, God. Yeah, all these images of you we keep seeing in your word, reminding us about who you are, because we need the reminders. Yeah, so Lord, I just um, ask for uh, just a continued revelation of you in our lives. Lord, that you would bring us comfort. The name Nehemiah means comfort of God. Came to comfort his people. So yeah, Lord, we embrace your comfort, even in the midst of what seems like rubble sometimes in our lives or things that weigh us down. We know that if we turn to you, there is comfort. There are new doors. There is fresh grace. There's new ways of looking at things. There's heart expansion. There's maturity. There's just an exciting adventure ahead with you, God. So I ask that you would give us the insight to turn to you again and again, to grow, to mature together to the fullness of Christ. I ask that you would bless us with that maturity. In your name we pray, amen.